This is a podcast episode on business innovation for the QED Changemaker series. I'm your host, Ryan Lim, Principal Consultant at QED Consulting. Our guest in this episode is the Chief Executive Officer of Polar Puffs and Cakes. With 29 years of F&B industry experience under his belt, he has held critical operations and business development roles in several companies such as CIAS, NTUC Food Fair, Manhattan Fish Market, Prima Deli, Daily Fresh in Shanghai, and Cafe Bean in Korea. In his spare time, this tenacious leader also pursues photography and is an avid reader in philosophy and human behavior and communities. Let's welcome Francis Louis to the QED Changemaker Series podcast. Hi Francis, great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Hi everybody. Okay, let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about Polar Puffs and Cakes. Could you tell us a little bit about Polar Puffs and Cakes and what you do as its CEO? Okay, so maybe with a little bit of a history of Polar Puffs and Cakes. Uh. Polar started in 1926. This year, we are in our 94th year. We started off as a cafe and now we are more known as a retailer and also a supplier to B2B business. So what is interesting about Polar story is that in 1926, when we started off as a cafe, we were basically a cafe that caters to the Asian business people that was in the old Singapore that wasn't even known as Singapore. It was basically known as Malaya. And Singapore was part of that whole, whole build-up. Yeah, pre-independence. So our business was a bit unique. So instead of going into Asian type of product, we actually created continental type of product and that's why we are known basically for our puff pastries, curry puff which is 94 year this year. And of course our chicken pie and our sugar roll and these are signature items that has been around as long as the company has been around. So that's basically the short version of the, the whole story itself. So perhaps a listener who, who understand a little bit about Polar, especially if you're in Singapore, then we are a household brand to, to many generations of Singaporeans. To people who may not be familiar with us, well Google us and you can find who we are. And there's a short history on the company itself and on the founder itself you can find it at the National Library Board and you can read about us and like I said, this, this company is unique is because basically went through 1926 up to now well, without actually closing the business. We even survived through the war. We only closed business itself for about six to nine months. Uh, was because we were chased out when the government took over some of the land that our cafe was sitting on. That was on the high street. Yeah, that was like a pause button, right? Like close for renovation rather than actually closing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a pause button. After when we closed, that was the only time we actually closed. And then we restarted in UOB at Reference Place. And that's why you can still find us at Reference Place because that's where we are closest to the original location is. And then of course, during that time, we were still operating as a single shop operation and our relationship with the petrol station and the convenience station then helped us to grow to what we are. So now we are about 32 two stores self-owned. We have 135 distribution points that we service the B2B customers. So B2B customers are convenience operators small shop operators we basically sell our product to them and they resell it to customers so for me on a day-to-day basis if you are ceo of a bakery facility or a company the thing is that we are very different from other industries so the ceo actually has to visit all the shops and we actually do food tasting on a daily basis so i've got about 14 hod's that i meet regularly 
So from production up to logistic up to retail. I'm gonna ask you, you know, how do you keep so fit, right? Having to do so much food tasting. You know? I mean, and most people can't see you right now, but I can. <laughs> okay, so because of the nature of my work and I drive, I actually park my car purposely in areas that requires me to walk. And because of that, staff that goes out with me for store visit, they hate it. <laughs> because they're like, Boss, we have a car park in the mall. Why are you parking at the open car park? I say we need to walk because we are going to eat a lot of curry puff. And because of the relationship we have with our customer, most customers know who I am. And when I go to the shop, they will look at me. Ryan can see how I look like. So I'm always dressed in my corporate t-shirts and I look like my staff, but people will recognize me immediately. Hey, you are someone that actually runs the business and they'll talk and I'll share and I'll give my name card. So much so that now, every time I go to the shop, the aunties knows me and they say, oh, you're here. And then if I'm food tasting, I will have to finish the product that I'm eating because we are also carrying our brand. Can you imagine if the CEO of a company that tastes the product, the next thing you throw it away, you will be giving a very bad image to the customer. So every time I go to any place and every time I pick up something to eat, I will finish it. And actually, it's like it's, it's very good. Like, I mean, the, our product is really good. And that's the reason why food tasting site, when we go to a store visit, is a chore for my retail people because we do really eat quite a lot. So, for example, on a daily basis, I have 30 over stores. Technically, I will basically go to about three shops to eat two curry puff and one sugar roll standard. Before I head back to office and then meet up with my operation teams in the factory side and also uh, holding base. Now, now more Zoom meeting, but pre-COVID, we literally sit down and then go through the work with all my team. And because of 14 HODs, I, I literally spend a day each just to talk to them. So one, one month, I'll at least meet my HOD twice. So my 30 days is full. <laughs> Maybe we should then change gears a little bit and talk about the business because uh, we have done a lot of like uh, like you mentioned right food tasting and you move out and the current business and the current landscape has changed dramatically thanks to the whole pandemic. So what has really changed for your business uh, except for Zoom meetings? <laughs> I think that's now the default, right? You you can't do like food tasting via Zoom. So what's going on? So the interesting part about now, as you look into retail, especially in Singapore, when the COVID hits us. Immediately, the number of visitors were cut down. You could see that the malls were basically also empty. We had basically a lockdown for almost two to three months. And then after that, slowly they, they open up and even the numbers are, are not very huge. So one of the biggest challenge in terms of retail space now is there is among my industry, is really looking at what is the correct number of retail store we should open. So during our heydays, right? So we, we are about 32 stores. So during our heydays, some of my partners, I call them partners, not, not competitors, people from other bakery industry. The biggest guys is about 68 stores. The smallest guy like us, we're about 32, some are about 28 stores. And then those guys that has a lot of stores are now reviewing is whether they should have this number of stores or should we be more efficient? So there is now a consolidation in terms of retail stores and then whether they should also open it a little bit bigger in terms of size because all of us are here as, as you know Singapore rental is very very high so every time you open something big you basically pay quite a lot of money and hope that the food traffic will get cover your rent but because of the current environment a lot of us are also re-looking at the way we design stores now e-commerce is something that you must have 
And the e-commerce platform poses basically a different type of problem for us. One is because although Singapore is very, very small, our logistic cost is very high. So when we design a store, how to incorporate e-commerce and then how to make sure that the product is available for customers to pick up apart from being delivered to them. Those are now also being placed into our design concept. So the idea is a smaller store will do very fast retail, but post-COVID, maybe what we'll do is we'll have a bigger stores. And now with the e-commerce side, you can also pick product that you order that is not sold in the kiosk or the store. I also make available for customer to pick up so that your extension of your physical space now is then augmented with your e-commerce platform. So that's the current design concept. So do you think that these kind of uh, behavioral and design changes are just temporary given maybe once the vaccine is out or is it something more permanent? Oh, I think if we read some books on basically habit and behavior conditioning, right? a human basically takes 21 days to condition behavior. Yeah, I'm locked down for almost a year. So I think what, what happened is now everybody is like looking at it and say, would customer behavior change? I'll go back to pre-COVID. I think a lot of us will most probably say it will change and it won't go to the old days where people will look at retail as what it is. Because of this, customer behavior will change. Customer requirement will change because the system has already been built to basically answer what is during COVID time. And that is... People are so used to buying things online. They are so used to now seeing a lot more products that is available. And offline location, which is your brick and mortar business, now becomes basically a pickup point for either when they come to your stores and pick up something that is not from your stores, but it's on the e-catalog, or they will just come and buy little small items that they want from your store. So I guess you ask me and say, will the customer change? The customer will change. The buying pattern will change. Retail will definitely change. Right, and from the looks of it, Polar is actually quite an innovative company, or at least with a lot of very innovative spirits. And you've shared like you're now redesigning the store. What about your business modeling or some of the other things that you talk about as part of your innovation journey? So, like everything, right, when you look at store design, it's always about showing the best product that you have and products that you can sell very quickly goes into stocks. So, like all retail operations, we also have our R&D guys that comes up with new product almost on a monthly basis. But if you look at it, you can't possibly place all the product in the retail stores. So now what we do is we follow basically the 2080 rules, like right? 20% of our hot product that contributes to 80% of our revenue are all placed in the shop itself. So that design will basically help us to optimize that rule so that it will then improve on what we call the basic top line first. Then the rest of the other thing, new items and all that, you can actually find it on the virtual shop. And then people will basically go there and order. And like as why I said, because of that way of looking at business, right? We sort of now extend our product range. That's one. The other thing about what we are doing now is then re-looking at do we actually need physical stores to do our business? So we are spending quite a lot of money now looking at how to make shopping even easier. So we have revamped now our e-commerce website to more of an e-catalog shopping website. Reason for doing this, are so in the old days, if you look at our F&B website, it would be a lot of uh, lifestyle look and feel, you know, banners flashing, and then we have slow moving pictures and we'll try to evoke lifestyle. So what Ola did in the last few months is now very straight to your face, catalog, you pick what you want, it's a shopping cart, and then you go. 
I think because of that COVID thing, right? People now know what they want and they shop what they want. Then the other thing was when you design for B to C, you also have to design for B to B. Why? During this time, we also see that a lot of people because they lost job. And every time in a situation like this, especially when you look at economy and they fail, there's no more new job creation. What will happen is that there will be suddenly a spurt of growth of entrepreneurship. And a lot of the entrepreneurship are basically single operators and they usually don't have access to suppliers. When we were designing our e-commerce platform, what we did was we also designed it so that people who rent small cafes and who want to basically do a reselling of our product because they could tweak it and they could hack it and make another product out of our product. Wow, you're, you're supporting the innovation of other entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, so what we did was when we were looking at our business, one of the things that we were thinking was, is Polar product, the final product is as it is. So we were saying that, well, no, because Polar's path and page three, you can eat it many ways. And because you can eat it many ways, if somebody is creative enough, they basically treat us as one part of a component of their business and then they buy back and then they rehash the product by adding a sauce to it or adding a cheese layer to it and then you come up with another new product they can then basically upscale it and then resell it so we allow customization in that way and we actually also do short videos to train potential users of our product or even end users of our product how to enjoy this product by putting on other things into either the pastry or the cakes. It's very exciting with what you've just shared, but innovation versus business as usual, are they like equal effort in terms of investment of your time, effort, resources, or do you see it more like innovation is like maybe 10% and business as usual and protecting the existing business models, maybe 90 kind of thing? So we practice this theory that Sony had done many many years ago when they were developing Walkman right I like to read a lot of books and and understand how other businesses run so we actually also look at self-cannibalization <laughs> we cannibalize our top product and say if we have a top selling product if we are acting as the competitor how will we be able to then win followers or win customer by designing a better product my goodness you're sounding like the apple of the pastry industry <laughs> no. so because of that right we started to become creative and we don't just sell product as a product so the innovation part and the business part i think especially now Technology allows a lot of information to move from people to people in seconds. I won't say nanoseconds, but in seconds. You need to be really, really innovative and really, really creative to survive in this business, especially in this arena. So if you look at it and say, I want to protect my business and this product is going to last for a long, long time. I don't think there are many products that will be able to last for a long, long time. So in other words, will there be a lot more or are they equal now, like 50-50 kind of investment of time and effort? From us, it's now 50-50. I think going forward in another five more years, it will be most of these 60-40 type of situation where 60% will be looking at innovation and then 40% will be maintaining products that are very good and then how to make it even better. So again, I've got to use this very sparingly because this is a Singapore context, not a context that can be used in the world. One of the things that Singapore is very different from the rest of the world is that we have a very small population. So having a small population and then having a very active population in terms of ideas are coming in, people will tend to then experiment quite a lot. And by experimenting quite a lot, it also means that they get bored quite easily. So old brands like us then need to know, okay, 
what are the 20% products that will support the 80% business and then the rest of the 80% of the product basically what we do is we keep on creating new product until we find the next champion product and then it stays within the 20% realm. Would you classify this as a kind of a challenge? I mean, innovation is great. It has this promise, right, of sustainable future in terms of, yeah, we will still be in business many years to come, right? Other than the good stuff, right, what are the challenges? You seem to have stumbled on that challenge as well. So the challenge is in our 10 more years, 40% of our staff will be in the 60s. So again, this industry is unique because I always say that we are in the low-tech business. All right, which means it's really very dependent on human being and dependent on skill. As much as we want to go and automate our processes, product like pastries, product like cakes, and at the end of the day, people will still want it to be either handmade and not machine made. The challenges is actually how to introduce and how to recruit younger people into the industry itself and then how to take this company from a very traditional type of bakery business into the modern world. So the modern world, actually now we are in the threshold of moving into the modern world. So it's not a change in terms of a century, but I think with COVID-19 happening in 2019, and then now we are going into 2020, it basically reset everybody. And we are being trust, whether we like it or not, into the new digital world, that is very different and into a new retail platform that is totally different from what we experienced two years ago. Because when my HR told me that, hey, you know, 40% of our staff are 60 years old, it hit you in the face that I'm going to have a very old group of people working and this industry eventually, if it's not taken care of, would actually disappear. Uh, that means the hand skill that now we have will actually disappear because passing down that skill set uh, will be difficult. So maybe then I can stop you there and ask you this uh, wish list for the government. I'm sure there's kind of support, right? So what's your wish list for them? We always said, uh, what's the future for Singapore? I'm 54 years old. I sort of grew how Singapore grew. I, independence was 1965, so I'm born in the year 1966. So in a way, my life history as a Singaporean being 54 years old, it's the same as what the history of Singapore is. There is a huge gap between the people who are born in the 1960s and there's a huge gap that people are born maybe even in the 1980s or even in the 1990s. So there's a large chunk of us who are basically, I wouldn't say in limbo, but are not really digital savvy about, about using working with automation and also on, on e-commerce. So we are still very low-tech in that sense, while we are being thrust forward into a high-tech environment. So I think my wish list, of course, at the end of the day is that people look at skill and then classify that actually skill should be looked upon as something that people want to get involved in. Like, for example, in Europe, if you are a skilled tradesman, you are really paid a skilled tradesman salary. <laughs> Here, if you, are, yeah, if you are in FMB, you are almost in the lowest paid salary. And, and that is very sad because these are skills that is learned through working and it is a skill that once lost even if you you keep it in digital record but you don't see how this thing is being made physically with your eye the recipe is useless the whole vocational or the focus on vocational kind of a skills that you just mentioned is actually so just as important isn't it yeah yeah in a way i like it in the last few years when after all your celebrity chefs celebrity bakery shows and all that and then you suddenly set a 
wave of young people suddenly wants to be either a pastry chefs or, or a barista. In a way, it's good, but that is not sustainable because it's just a fashionable thing to do. But I think what we really want people to look at is to really look at traits and look at all these skill sets, and then how to really basically raise up the level for it and raise the acceptance that if you are not digital, then skill is another thing that you should have that is equally important. If the whole Singapore, everybody is so smart and they are all working for a digital company and nobody is actually cooking their meal, it's very sad. <laughs> it's very very sad. You know, it's like you know we are we are all very very smart people and all we could eat is either ready to eat meals. And you don't actually know how a traditional product is made by hand. It will be such a sad future, man, Francis. <laughs> and because everybody wants to go in the sexy industry, and the non-sexy industry like us is not being taken care of, then you lose not just the skill, you also lose a part of the heritage that we attach ourselves with food. Right. So let's get a little bit personal, right? I had a sort of like flavor of your leadership styles, but I want to hear from you. What's your personal leadership style like? Any advice or for our listeners out there? So I've always asked my younger staff, I said, do they enjoy working in Polar? So strangely, the last few years, we have been able to recruit very young staff, as young as 20, 21 years old, up to 25. And then my millennials actually came and said, boss, we are millennials, but we are now in 32 years old. I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, millennials are 32. <laughs> so, so when we were looking at them and said, what makes you join Polar? And why do you join Polar? So a lot of them actually saw and like the company and they actually did check with people who has worked here and they like the idea of heritage so in a way where my wish list was to say that we hope that the government or, or agencies will then look at skills as equally important like low-tech skill as equally important as high-tech skill huh? working for your amazons and people like that the programmers and we look at them and say oh they enjoy it because the company has a few policies that they like one of the things that we did was to start a no retirement program for Polar. That is basically to allow our people to work uh, longer in the company and then also for us to plan career path for them. Then the other one is of course planning career path. So a lot of SMEs tends to when you have young staff coming in and then you plong them into an area, you don't actually plan for them. So what we did was we actually planned for them. We make sure that they grow with the company and we make sure that they also have a voice in the decision making. So going back to my leadership style, I think now if you are a CEO of SME, you're more like a principal and a teacher than a boss. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, when you have a lot of uh, very young folks that comes in, they look for you for guidance, they look for you basically to share their difficulties and then you act almost like a principal or a teacher to go and work with them on projects and give them ideas on how to solve problems. I think that's the leadership style that will follow through for many, many more years because the generations that are coming into work are very used to this type of what we call group behaviour. And that group behaviour has to be then taken in consideration when we manage a very young team. At the end of the day, what happens on my side is that I, I now work with a team and I'll give them projects and on and off, I'll sit in and then review their projects and, and sort of like, you know, tell me what you're doing and then they go offline, then we basically give them a few options and then they choose and then they come back and then they report. So my leadership style is now very open 
everybody has a voice and they can share. So with my 14 HODs, which is their boss, my monthly meeting is about 20 over people to 30 over people. It's almost like a classroom size. <laughs> and we are very open with information. The reason why we need to be open with information is because when everybody knows where we are heading, then the whole team and everyone knows how to then plan for their job role. We are not operating on a, a one single voice and then everybody move. Actually, it's one whole group and then we all decide on how the company should move. And then I look at the various options and then I'll explain to them why we go into this. And then if things doesn't work, then quickly we readjust our direction. So I think more like a principal now than a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Francis, for your candid sharing and valuable insights. It's been wonderful having this conversation with you. And I'm sure that all our fellow industry leaders listening would also benefit greatly from it. Thank you so much. Most of all, thank you listeners for tuning in to our QED Changemaker Series podcast. For more information on QED's leadership development solutions, email us at info at qed.sg. That's info at qed.sg. Do remember to subscribe to our channel and be updated on our latest episodes. I'm your host, Ryan Lim, and I look forward to having you in our next episode.